At its very core, drug science must remain independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. It's with the support of the drug science community we're able to do this and make the podcast in the first place. If you're able to become a drug science community member and support the show, you too will be supporting the dissemination of evidence-based drug policies. Without you, none of this would be possible. For anybody interested, there's a link in the show notes. Thank you. Hello and welcome to the Drug Science Podcast with me, David Nutt. Here we're bringing together experts and activists for a rational, honest and informed conversation about drugs. A Fascinate Productions podcast for drug science. Hello everyone, Uh, welcome to this drug science podcast. I'm David Nutt and today I'm talking with Bryce Pardo, all the way from Washington DC. And Bryce is an expert on uh, opioids and the opioid crisis. And uh, so welcome, welcome Bryce. Thank you, Professor Nutt. No, call me Dave, please. <laughs> Just <laughs> not make this too formal. Um, so, so, Bryce, tell us a little bit about yourself and about this organization called RAND that you're working for at present. Sure. Uh, the RAND Corporation, um, just to kind of give you a background, it started just after World War II. Uh, RAND starts, uh, stands for Research and Development. It has traditionally been a think tank for the military, for the Department of Defense. But in the last uh, 50 years or so, it has started to adopt a little bit more uh, social policy portfolios. So they uh, there's a lot of research involved with healthcare research, labor economics, uh, criminal justice. And RAND has now for about 30 years uh, operated a drug policy research research center. Uh, the center um, just actually celebrated its 30th anniversary last year. And uh, in that, we we do work on all sorts of issues involving drugs and alcohol policy in the United States and around the world. A little bit of background about me. Uh, I started at RAND a little over two, about two years ago. Uh, before that, I was um, finishing my PhD at University of Maryland. But I've been working in drug policy research and design now for a little over 10 years. Uh, I was a program officer at the Organization of American States here in uh, Washington, D.C., which uh, I guess is, I guess to put it best simply, it's um it's a cheaper, or it's, an, it's a poorer and older version of uh, the United Nations that covers just Latin America and the Caribbean. So I used to work in the Drug Commission there, uh, doing a lot of work with uh, local, uh, national, um, and international stakeholders involved with drug trafficking and uh, drug policy research. In the last few years, I've really been focusing on opioids. It's been kind of the, the big issue here in the United States. Yes. Well, that's right. So why don't we just... Uh introduce our listeners to what is an opioid in case they don't know an opioid well an opioid um, is is basically any chemical that plays on the opioid receptors in the brain there's several different receptors in the brain as you know the mu opioid receptor being the the one that contributes to a large portion of both its benefits and its harms um, an opioid is used uh, for all sorts of things including pain management uh, or analgesia as well as anesthetics to kind of knock people out for proceed you know invasive surgeries and other procedures so that's what we've been using opioids you uh, now for you know millennia. Yeah, well, actually opiates and then opioids in, in more recent years. Yeah, that's right. Of course, I mean, the, the original plant is the, the opium poppy and the people have been eating or smoking opium, as you say, for millennia. But then it, they came into medicine, what, about a couple of hundred years ago as a sort yep. of uh, refinement of the, of the, of the plant. Mm-hmm. Yep, morphine. Then, you know, yep. With morphine being, yeah. And, uh, and obviously they're, you know, hugely, I've heard many pharmacologists say they're the most that was the most significant innovation in medicine, uh, at least in pharmacology, was actually getting pain control with morphine. So uh, that's clear, you know, clearly they do a lot of good. But, but you're not interested in them because they're good painkillers, are you? Not, not particularly. No, uh, our our issue here in the United States has largely been the oversupply and the overuse of uh, prescription medications, and then later this kind of transitioned to other um, opioids, uh, typically heroin, and, and now we're seeing a lot of the synthetics coming into these markets. Uh, so that's been a lot of what we have been researching at Rand is is really kind of how do we respond to the ongoing harms associated with the um, overdoses and and just the oversupply of opioids. Yeah, I think it'd be really important. Uh, I know the the U.S. opioid crisis is big in the U.S., but we have listeners all around the world. So, <laughs> so why don't you uh, give us a kind of brief overview of what it is, what it's about, when it started, and uh, of course, you know the enormous uh, toll it's taking on people's lives. Sure. No, it's uh, so 
we in the mid 1990s, uh, the United States started to change the narrative with regard to pain management. Uh, a lot of this was driven by pharmaceutical industries uh, who really, I mean, these are in some ways were well-intentioned. Uh, they really wanted to treat pain and doctors also wanted to treat pain. I mean, patients suffering from, you know, acute or chronic pain, uh, you know, it's, it's hard to watch people suffer with that type of uh, ailment. So the pharmaceutical industry in the mid 1990s started to reformulate some of the traditionally used uh, pain management therapies. Oxycodone was the principal opioid used for pain management at the time. Uh, Purdue Pharma in the mid-1990s reformulated this into an extended release formulation called OxyContin. This was the kind of the one that gets the most blame, at least in terms of causing this problem. So in the mid-1990s, we started to shift the, the focus to treating pain. Pain was um, considered the fifth vital sign alongside you know, temperature, pulse, you know, the other kind of the other four vital signs that, that doctors use to kind of determine if people are alive. And so pain was added to this. And so a lot of the metrics were driving um, doctors and hospitals to treat pain. And one way of treating pain was very easily to prescribe medication. So that started in the mid-1990s and really carried us through until about 2010 or so. That was the, the kind of first wave, as it's known. Uh, Dan Ciccaroni at, at University of California, San Francisco, has kind of termed this as a waving of a three-wave events. Uh, so first was the prescription opioids. Uh, that kind of went through about until, I mean, we still have a prescription opioid problem with oversupply. But up until about 2010 or so is when that, that problem was, was left largely unchecked. Up until about 2008, 2010, policymakers started to realize Okay, we're starting to overdo it with with prescription opioids. Overdoses were rising year over year, involving principally oxycodone and hydrocodone were the two main prescription opioids that were found in in, uh, mortality data due to overdose. And so, yeah, as you know, opioids um, are great at pain management, but after taking them for an extended period of time, an individual can develop physical dependency or, you know, as we know, addiction, the kind of behavior associated with physical dependency. So avoiding withdrawal. Just interrupt you just quickly there. Were, sure. were, those, were those overdoses accidental or were they suicide or was it some combination of both? Both. Uh, so it depends. Uh, part of the part of the interesting, I guess, phenomenon here in the United States is that um, coroners and medical examiners are largely uh, depends on the state. Some states have more resources to uh, to dedicate towards kind of proper toxicological and death recording. Some states, in some cases, coroners are actually elected officials. So you have, you know, Bob mm-hmm. Jones out in, yeah, exactly, in some county in the middle of America, um, you know, determining whether or not this overdose was a suicide or whether this was uh, unintentional or accidental. So the data are very kind of tricky. Uh, what we do know is that we are seeing a lot of overdoses because of prescription opioids during this period of time, whether or not they were intentional or suicidal, we, we, it's hard to really parse that out. Um, but nonetheless, it's, they, they were starting to uh, rise year over year. You're still dead, whatever the driver, aren't you? That's yeah. the problem. And opioids kill you because they stop you breathing, and that's why they are, are dangerous. And, and uh, especially if you yep. take them in combination with other drugs which suppress breathing, like benzodiazepines. Yeah. I was just going to say that. So doctors, in addition to pain management, they were prescribing benzodiazepines for all sorts of things like anxiety. Uh, and so in combination, individuals were taking a very dangerous cocktail of drugs, either not knowing that um, because they would, you know, they would get one prescription from one doctor and then get another prescription from another doctor. So these types of kind of, I mean, our, our medical system in the United States is very fractured, very fragmented. And in many ways, that's, that's probably contributing to poor, you know, treatment, poor management of care and resulting in these harms. So people could go to different doctors and get the same pill. Get or different prescriptions or multiple prescriptions. Um, and so up until there are policies put into place to try to prevent that. Uh, one is known as a prescription drug monitoring program, and these are essentially state-based electronic databases where a prescriber or dispenser has to log the prescription that an individual receives or has to check it before actually dispensing. The pharmacist has to check the database before dispensing that pill and determining, okay, no, Mr. Jones, I see here you've received already a 30 days prescription of oxycodone from Dr. You know, Smith, so I can't prescribe you this from Dr. Um, you know, whatever. So those types of systems were put into place largely uh, in 2008, 2010 is when a lot of these prescription drug monitoring programs were put into place. And that is when we started to see the kind of second wave emerging, which was heroin. Uh- all right, so just stick with the first wave because I want to yep. get my head around this. Um, that, those prescription monitorings, do they go across state lines or are they just within a state? It depends on the state. Oh, okay. 
So some states have more uh, kind of policy levers to pull than others. Some states don't share their databases. In many cases, uh, they were not electronic, at least initially. Oh, and then really? later they become, <laughs> yep, yep. That's a challenge, a big country, not electronic. <laughs> yep. And in some cases, some states didn't monitor beyond schedule three drugs. So uh, just to kind of give listeners who are not familiar with the scheduling system, all drugs are categorized by uh, abuse potential and harms, schedules one through five. Uh, one is you know prohibited, no use, no medical use. Uh, so things like heroin, LSD, cannabis, coincidentally, are on that list. Prescription drugs like oxycodone, schedule two. Hydrocodone was moved to schedule two from schedule three. So in some states where hydrocodone was essentially a schedule three drug, doctors were prescribing that because the the, PDM, the prescription drug monitoring program didn't cover that. Didn't yep. up, yeah, so yeah, this is this fragmentation in policy really is, you know, can contribute to these problems. And was it all private prescriptions or were people getting it from Medicaid as well? Medicaid as well. Yeah. No. So the government was very aggressive in treating pain. And so all the metrics were, were really pushing doctors to, to treat pain as a fifth vital sign. So a doctor would get good scores or a hospital would get good scores based on the patients, um, how well their pain was being managed. And of course, you know, you're, you're incentivizing doctors to, to, yeah, in some cases not treat the underlying condition, but just treat the pain. Yeah, no, I can. So that was the first wave to about 2010. Then what was the second wave? So the second wave was heroin. Uh, and this, you know, the United States has had a long, has had a long history with heroin going back over 100 years. Our heroin, uh, kind of the epidemics of heroin have risen and fallen over time. Up until this recent uh, wave, uh, the last, the kind of last serious heroin problem in this in this country was in the 70s. During the Vietnam War and a little bit thereafter, that problem subsided. Heroin remained in a couple urban markets, uh, Baltimore, New York, you know, longstanding in parts of these urban markets. But up until 2008, 2010, it it really lay dormant by and large in most of the country. That started to change. At, in in the, the best case scenario that we're at least the, the story that makes the most sense to a lot of people is that we. We really saturated the market with prescription medications. And in many cases where we're overprescribing, we're in places like Appalachia, uh, kind of the, the mountain region in the Eastern Corridor, uh, West Virginia, Kentucky, Ohio, uh, parts of Pennsylvania, Western Pennsylvania, those, those states. And in many cases, those states, those individuals pr being prescribed those medications when states started to realize they were overdoing the prescription medications and they put these supply constraints on accessing um, oxycodone and other pills, that's when we started to see heroin rise. And there's been some work done by my colleagues uh, at RAND, uh, David Powell and Rosalie Pakula have, have looked at um, these kind of natural experiments where states um, you know, implement these policies or the federal government in some cases. So in 2010, the federal government uh, required that uh, oxycodone or oxycontin was reformulated into abuse deterrent formulation. So before you could take these drugs, you could um, basically crush them up and snort them or inject them. Well, in 2010, the federal government required that pharmaceutical manufacturers prevent that by adding some sort of additive that if you crushed it up, it would gum up the, the drug. So you couldn't no longer actually snort or inject the drug. And that may have resulted in a, in a move to heroin as individuals found it harder to obtain drugs to uh, you know these prescription opioids. So hang on, one thing I need to be clear. So are we talking about the, these these drugs being used by the people who will get the prescriptions or are we talking about diversion? Here? Both. So oh. it's individuals that were overprescribed, long-term pain patients that after a period of time, they did develop you know, tolerance, they did develop essentially a physical dependency. What is different with prescription opioids is that a patient that could obtain a substantial amount of, of say, a 90 days supply of uh, oxycodone tablets could then sell those on the street. And that's what we started to see. And so this, it, it kind of, yeah, it was kind of an atomizing effect where you would have someone getting a 90 day prescription of oxycodone and then would sell maybe 60% of that on the street in order to buy more drugs. And because on the street, mm. they're worth more. So, yeah. yeah. So in some ways, an individual patient can actually kind of be a vehicle for further supply. And that's different from heroin in many cases. I mean, yeah, some users dabble a little bit and sell a little bit, but this is different in many ways. Well, you, you don't have any prescribed heroin there, whereas None. we do, but we, you know, one would never prescribe a month's worth of heroin. You know? <laughs> Yep. Anyway, so so the people were people were getting hooked. Uh, some of the patients, sometimes their families or mm -hmm. who they were selling it to, and then they then the restriction was brought in the um, the monitoring, etc. Numbers of prescriptions went down, and people went then to to the, to get an alternative, and that was heroin. Yeah, that seems to be the case. I mean, looking at the ethnographic literature, looking at the kind of the the natural experiments at the state level, yeah, it seems to be that we. I mean, these well-intended policies to treat pain 
kind of led us to oversaturating the market. And then we again, you know, not really lit, taking a kind of a comprehensive, holistic view of this problem, decided to then supply, uh, constrain supply very quickly. And as you know, an individual who is getting opioids, I mean, they, if they have a tolerance to opioids, they need that drug to avoid withdrawal. I mean, withdrawal is very painful. Uh, you know, some people, they, they take their own lives under withdrawal because it's extremely painful. And so an individual facing those, that choice, in many cases, will opt to source from the illicit market. And at this time, heroin is, you know, was available. The poppy cultivation in Mexico, which is the, the principal supplier of our heroin in the United States, uh, started to increase uh, during this period of time. Oh, so, yeah. I hadn't realized it's grown, it's grown in Mexico. Yep, yep. Most of our... Oh, it doesn't... Yep. Ah, interesting. I thought it was. I assumed it was would come from Afghanistan, but no. You actually. The- no. Yeah. In the United States, the two continents, North and South America, largely produce and supply their own heroin. I didn't, I didn't um, there's a few exceptions. That. I mean, Canada does still source from the uh, the Golden Triangle in Southeast Asia, uh, parts of Canada in Western Canada, but but largely, yeah. No, it's all of our heroin here in the United States comes from Mexico. So the Mexicans, they started growing the poppy. Making heroin, importing it uh, alongside. Was it the same as the cocaine trade? Was it the same gangs? Or? Pretty much, yeah. The, Me- the Mexican drug trafficking organizations are really good at smuggling. They have had a long standing history of smuggling, going back to prohibition, uh, alcohol prohibition in the United States in the 1920s. They pretty much figured that out. They're really good businesses at smuggling. Um, they don't produce any cocaine. Uh, all that's sourced from Colombia, but they, they, they traffic it. Um, and then with poppy, they did get into the poppy business pretty seriously. They So before. 2005, 2010, in that period, half of our heroin was sourced from Colombia, the other half from Mexico. The Mexicans pretty much took over all the entire market uh, there. They pushed out the Colombians. They still produce two forms of hot heroin in the United States, but it's, uh, it's all sourced from Mexico. Oh, what are those two forms? I didn't know there were two forms. So this is this will get into the fentanyl story, but there's so there's two forms of heroin that sourced here or that, that supplied here, and it's it's interesting. The geographic variation is 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 so it's divided basically right down the middle of the country, uh, the east of the Mississippi River, um, so New York, Miami, all those major the eastern corridor is powdered heroin. It was coming largely from Colombia before, and then the Mexicans figured out how to synthesize powdered heroin. West of the Mississippi River, it's black and brown tar heroin. It's a less kind of pure form of heroin, um, not as refined. And and it's and that that's an important you know for your for your listeners that's an important kind of variation as we get into the fentanyl story later. But yeah, that's just to kind of give you some background there. So these are the Mexican. Uh, I mean, you can smuggle alcohol. You can smuggle anything because <laughs> the, the volumes of heroin are so tiny compared with smuggling. Yep. Okay. So they, they started heroin started coming in. People weren't getting the, the oxycontin. They were hooked. They started using heroin and they started dying. More of them started dying. So yes, heroin numbers started to increase. The heroin overdose numbers started to increase in 2008 for the first time in over 10 years. And it was a pretty substantial bump. Uh, I think it was like a 20% bump from the year prior. And that was kind of the first time we saw, okay, Something might be happening here. I mean, still, prescription opioids drove the narrative up until about 2015. Uh, prescription mm-hmm. opioids were still the dominant um, you know, relative to, to heroin. It, it, there were more individuals dying of prescription opioids than heroin. And that's that's probably largely due to the fact, you know, they're, they're more prevalently used. You've got mm-hmm. everyone from, you know, your 90-year-old grandmother to a 20-year-old uh, high school student who injured his knee during football practice uh, that were taking prescription opioids. Heroin was largely taken by, at this period of time, was largely being used by, uh, again, um, individuals. I mean, traditionally, heroin has been used by kind of the urban black community in this country. And you're seeing a lot of individuals who are just longstanding heroin users. They've had decades of heroin use careers. And those were the individuals that were longstanding just dying from heroin overdoses. This started to change as the constraints were put on prescription opioids. We started to see heroin showing up in parts of rural America, in Appalachia, in Ohio, these areas where we had already kind of saturated uh, the market with prescription opioids. And so that was different. You know, heroin was coming back in, in a new cohort of users. We'll get back to the interview in just a second. I just want to thank all the Drug Science Community members for your continued support. Without you, the dissemination of information like this would not be possible. Drug science is, and always will be, independent. This means we don't accept sponsorships. But by becoming a Drug Science Community member, you'll be helping us bring about change. You'll also receive access to exclusive events and will be able to attend all Drug Science events for free. To see how to become a community member, click on the link in the show notes. Now, where were we? Let's get back to the show. The, internationally, the regulations on heroin 
as a medicine different. Now, Britain is one of the few countries where heroin is a medicine and it is prescribed for things like heart failure and occasionally it's prescribed for people with addiction. But in America, it hasn't been a medicine for 50 years, has it? So any heroin death in America is illegal heroin. Correct. All of our heroin is sourced illegally. So you know that people are dying from heroin, you know it's being illegally imported. Okay, right. And then what happened? What was the third wave? So the third wave is the one that we are kind of now experiencing when it comes to opioids. And this is synthetic opioids, typically or principally fentanyl. Late 2013 is when we started to see the kind of the, the first initial stages here. It really started to show up in 2014. When I say show up in, in, in both death data and in the seizure data that are provided by law enforcement. And so fentanyl, which is a synthetic opioid, is starting to increase. Up until this time, the numbers of synthetic opioid use uh, or overdose deaths had remained flat, about little around 3,000. It oscillated around 3,000 a year up until about 2013, 2014 is when we started to really see a takeoff. And to kind of give you an, a figure, it's been, um, it's been an unprecedented exponential growth, really. So in 2013, we had about 3,000 overdose deaths involving synthetic opioids. In 2018, that number jumped to over 31,000. So a more, more than tenfold increase in about six years. Wow. So let's just, let's just hold it there for a second, and let's just make sure, again, we're, so you use the two terms there. You use fentanyls and you use synthetic opioids. Are they the same? So this is where things get a little bit uh, complicated and tricky and fun. Um, so synthetic opioids is just a basket of, of all sorts of chemicals, and this is just a, a kind of a generic term. Uh, essentially, as I said, an opioid is anything that plays on the opioid receptors in the brain, kappa, mu, et cetera. Synthetic opioid is different from semi-synthetic or natural opiates um, in the sense that they are not derived from poppy. That's the main difference here. Right. right. So okay. heroin, which is refined from poppies, it's essentially a, it's morphine, but it's a, it's a prodrug. Fentanyl is a type of synthetic opioid, and it's made in a lab from chemicals. It is not derived from poppy. That's basically the main difference between synthetic opioids, which is just a generic term that bends all these chemicals together. And it can range from things like tramadol, which is a very weak opioid, to carfentanil, which is extremely potent. So what what drove the rise of fentanyls and synthetic opioids? That is the kind of million-dollar question. And we spent at RAND, a few colleagues and I, worked on several different reports, uh, one of which was published last year, which is, to our knowledge, is the most comprehensive analysis of the kind of past, present, and possible futures of synthetic opioids, uh, given what we know from the data, given what we've seen in the, in the literature, and thinking about how these markets unfold. Um, and just to give your readers some context, um, this was not the first time that uh, – uh, fentanyl or other synthetic opioids arrived in illegal drug markets in the United States. Uh, you know, the most recent outbreak started in late 2013, 2014 is continuing today. But we identified four prior outbreaks uh, as going back as early as 1979. And looking at the kind of history of these outbreaks, we kind of realized that there's several factors that are contributing to this rise today. But but largely, it's it's a supplier driven phenomenon. This isn't a demand-driven phenomenon, at least not initially. Heroin users, you know, they're being sold baggies of heroin mixed with fentanyl, and they're being told it's, it's good quality heroin. Or they're being sold a, a, a pill that's made to look like a, a 30 milligram Malincrot oxycodone tablet, you know, from a pharmaceutical manufacturer. But in fact, it contains maybe one or two milligrams of fentanyl and some sort of other filler just to give it weight. And so they're being sold drugs that they think are traditionally used or diverted drugs when, in fact, it's the dealers who are the ones making the transition towards these more potent synthetic opioids. And this is largely because of economics. You know, synthetic opioids, because they're not plant-based, they can be made in a lab very quickly in a matter of, you know, a week. You don't have to wait three months for, for a plant to come they to harvest. They don't have to grow, no. Correct. <laughs> you don't have to worry about paying, you know, campesinos up in the mountains of Mexico to to extract the latex gum from the from the uh, poppy plant and refine the heroin. Um, and then in addition to that, it's very, very potent. So you can mix a very little amount. You can conceal a very little amount trafficking it over the border mm-hmm. or sending it by mm-hmm. mail. So it really is attractive to dealers. And that's that's what we think is driving this phenomenon. It's the dealers who are transitioning to fentanyls and synthetic opioids, not so much the users, at least not initially. Over time, that has changed. And we're starting to see in the in the literature that uh, an individual who was initially a heroin user was exposed to fentanyl, has become tolerant to the more potent fentanyl. Now we'll seek it out because heroin just doesn't do anything for them. It doesn't work anymore. Right. Yeah. 
I mean, just to be clear about this, so you had you have these two forms of of heroin, you know, the brown, dirty stuff on the in the west, and the the clean white powder. Um, was it largely being injected, or were people smoking it? Injection. Most of the most of the heroin consumed in this country is still injected. And the same will be the fentanyls. I think you have to inject. I don't know. If, I don't think you can smoke them. So. No, you can't smoke them. But the thing is, they're being concealed as these traditional drugs of abuse. So that's that's the thing is that individuals are you know these dealers are lying to their buyers, saying, "Oh, this is good quality heroin." Yeah, I mean, if you've got poor quality heroin and you suddenly take a shot of fentanyl, you think you've got good quality heroin because, it's, as you say, it's just so much more potent. Yep, yep. So back of the envelopes, 25, 20, 25, 30 times more potent than heroin, at least looking at the kind of the, the tail flick assays that they report in the, in the literature. Um, so. so it's a kind of dream come true for the dealer or at least for the manufacturer. Absolutely. We did some, some back of the envelope calculations and uh, wholesale price of fentanyl is about 99% cheaper per dose uh, per kilogram of, than heroin. So just to run that back of the – just to kind of give your listeners a, a fuller perspective, bigger perspective. So you can buy online from China a kilogram of fentanyl for about $5,000 of nearly pure fentanyl from a Chinese manufacturer. In contrast, a kilogram of heroin that's trafficked over the border and sold just over the border in the United States may, may run you – and this is a you know 50% pure. It may run you $50,000. And then once you factor in the the potency uh, variation, you adjust for that. It's about ninety nine percent cheaper at wholesale price per dose. So it is an utter no brainer. If you're going to sell something, the profit margin is is almost a hundred times more for fentanyl. Wow! So that's why it's changed so dramatically. And of course, but it's not just that. It's the fact that the, the potency means it's more lethal. Yeah, the potency is is the tricky thing. So the margins of error are much smaller here, much more narrow. So if you were dosing fentanyl, and these, you know, in many cases at the, at the domestic near the market, uh, the guys that are distributing these drugs or mixing these drugs are doing it, you know, not in a lab- laboratory setting, not with sophisticated equipment. They're using an off-the-shelf blender they got from you know some hardware store or something, and just mixing it in on their kitchen counter. Uh, and so if you get a zero wrong, you know, you're going to kill a lot of people, and that seems to be the case. Yes, yes, yeah. Get a zero wrong, you're right, and then you're dead, aren't you? I mean, this is yep. a tenfold overdose. So, what does Rand say we should be doing about it? I mean, what is, it sounds to me it's a, a rather challenging situation. It is. So, uh, the bottom line for us is that you know our traditional approaches to drug policy, at least that you know as, as we've used them in the last few decades, won't work across all dimensions. So we really need to start thinking more innovatively when it comes to uh, supply disruption. So a good portion of the fentanyl that is sourced into this country is at least pure stuff that, we, that we're seeing in the seizure data is coming kind of direct to mail, direct to, direct to buyers through the, through the mail from China. Uh, you know, the Mexican drug cartels are involved, increasingly involved in the supply of synthetic opioids and fentanyl, but, but there's also a good portion that's coming from China. So thinking about ways in which we can disrupt online sourcing to deter individuals from buying fentanyl from China. Thinking more innovatively about demand reduction. Uh, in this country, we only offer two opioid agonist therapies and one antagonist therapy. So we offer buprenorphine. Talk our audience through what this, what this what you're talking about. There. I mean, make it a bit simpler and start from the sure. Yeah. So so basically, um, if you have an opioid use disorder and you want to stop using heroin, you can turn to two drugs that will basically serve as replacements for that. I mean, I'm using replacements a little bit lightly here but so basically you can you can use buprenorphine which is a partial uh, agonist it sometimes will bind to the receptor sometimes it won't or you can use methadone which is a which is a full agonist which will bind to the receptor and those are the two principal therapies that we use for medication therapy then there's a third one an, an antagonist and this basically binds to the receptor but blocks any uh, other opioids from sitting on that receptor site. And that's now Trexone or Vivitrol, as it's known here in the United States. And those are basically what you have access to in the United States. There's three medications if you want to get medication-assisted therapy to get off opioids, if you have an opioid use disorder. And we've been using methadone for over 50 years with great success. Uh, Buprenorphine we've been using for about 20 years with pretty good success as well. Um, Now, Trexone's fairly limited in how it's used. And I mean, it doesn't really have all the benefits of the other agonists, but it is used in certain settings for certain uh, patients. And that's it. People don't want to take naltrexone because they um, it can put them into withdrawal. And if it doesn't put them into withdrawal, they don't, there's nothing from it. Whereas at least with methadone and buprenorphine, you're getting yep. some approximation to the the benefits of your of your oxycontin or your hair or whatever. Yeah. yeah, that and I guess naltrexone can can mess with the endorphins. It can prevent individuals from actually feeling kind of, yeah, joy. It's it all opioids, isn't it? That's right. Okay. 
So you've got your main your mainstay has been methadone with some buprenorphine to, to help people much. get something in their lives. You're recommending we're going to roll that out more, or what's what's the plan? So yeah, so we do need to do more of those for sure. Uh, in this country, again, the fragmentation of our healthcare system really limits the ability with which we can get individuals out of the markets through uh, through some of these medication assisted therapies. So in some states here in the United States, or in some localities, there are actually moratoriums, legal moratoriums, on opening a new methadone clinic. So you've got places that will pro- prohibit the opening of a new methadone clinic. Um, at the federal level, doctors that want to prescribe buprenorphine for maintenance therapy or you know, essentially to help people with, with opioid use disorder, they're capped. Uh, the DEA did lift that cap from 100 to 275, but you still have some doctors that, you know, they cannot prescribe or treat more than 275 individuals for maintenance therapy with buprenorphine. Just the regulations on opening a new facility is just arduous. It's just very difficult for a provider to open up a new opioid treatment facility in some states, given the regulatory requirements or the outright bans on opening a facility. So that really limits our ability. So what state governments won't do it, then it's got to be an individual, has it? So, yeah, we in this country we do, and this is, I guess, the main takeaway, uh, is we've left a lot of our healthcare treatment to private interests and private sector in this country. We got into this mess with overprescribing because of the private industries and the kind of, yeah, the regulatory capture. And now we can't get out of this mess because we're, we've really constrained our ability for kind of more public sector interventions. Medicaid, which, which is a public sector provider of, um, it's a single payer essentially, uh, Medicaid and Medicare, the two publicly funded healthcare insurance systems in this country, uh, at the federal level at least, there are state run programs as well that can kind of supplement. But but largely those, and they are the largest providers of uh, opioid you know, use disorder treatments. So yeah, Medicaid in particular does provide a lot of opioid use uh, treatment, medication assisted therapy for individuals. But some states you have, so back when, I don't know if you're familiar with Obamacare, that whole brouhaha yeah. about uh-huh. 10 years ago, uh-huh. yeah, when, when we wanted uh-huh. to expand that, yeah, when we wanted to expand access to, to treatment. Well, because everything is so fractured, the Supreme Court struck down, so before that, the law required states to, to, to expand their Medicaid and Medicare enrollee listings, or sorry, Medicaid enrollee listings. So states had to expand and adopt more. And it was free money for them. The federal government was going to pay for it. Well, a bunch of Republican states sued the government and the Supreme Court ruled that indeed the federal government can't tell states what to do. So you have a lot of states that didn't expand Medicaid. So when they were having a prescription opioid problem, they at the same time couldn't get individuals into adequate treatment because they didn't qual- these individuals didn't qualify. They were making either too much money so they weren't poor enough to get on the the, the Medicaid. Yeah, yeah. So it really, yeah, no, we've we've really, in some ways, um, you know, we we screwed people up in the end, yeah, on the way in, and by overtreating pain aggressively with a simple solution like a pill, and then we saddled them with an addiction, and then kind of didn't really provide them with the the right treatment method treatment modalities to get them out of the system. So that's kind of the the, the big takeaway here is uh, you know the root causes. It's it's yeah regulatory capture and yeah. <laughs> So, so what what are you recommending, bro? I mean, sounds like a nightmare. It, it is. So, I mean, yeah, obviously we need to expand Medicaid or the the the, the ability with which um, insurance companies and individuals can obtain uh, uh, medication-assisted therapy. So we need to expand, you know, reduce the regulations on methadone, reduce uh, the caps on buprenorphine prescribing. In addition to that, we did look at the literature on several innovative and kind of controversial harm reduction and, and other treatment modalities, so other agonist therapies. Uh, so we did look at the literature that, you know, has decades of research in Europe and in, in Canada, principally heroin-assisted therapy, essentially prescribing individuals medically grade, mm-hmm. yeah, pharmaceutical grade heroin. Mm-hmm. There, there's some good research on that. Randomized controlled trials showing that indeed individuals that do receive supervised medi- um, heroin from from a medically supervised facility, they go in, they get they get essentially pharmaceutical grade heroin. They use there two three times a day. They set their own dose. Compare that with traditional treatment like methadone, oral methadone. Those individuals did report greater health outcomes, did report basically longer retention times and treatment and reductions in use of illicit heroin, which, you know, given that that's how the fentanyl is arriving in these markets through yeah. heroin, that, that seems to be the biggest way of helping individuals to uh, to avoid contact with fentanyl. I mean, again, these the heroin-assisted therapy is still very limited in, in even where it's rolled out for you know, 20, 30 years in some cases, like in, um, in Switzerland, it's not, it's not a first line treatment. Um, you know, most people start off with methadone, they fail methadone maybe 10 times and they go to the heroin assisted therapy. So we looked at that. We also looked at supervising consumption. 
And supervised consumption facilities have existed in Europe, in Canada, and Australia now in some places for 30 years. And so we looked at the literature there thinking that, well, individuals are overdosing because they don't know what they're taking. They're using a loan or they're using – in some cases, you know, they will not call the authorities because it is a crime to possess. So they don't want to get into trouble. So you know, what does the literature say on supervising that consumption? Because if an individual does overdose in a facility, there's someone there with naloxone to reverse the overdose to save the life. So we looked at the literature. Literature is largely, you know, it doesn't say that there. Literature largely shows a positive effect on several different types of dimensions of of outcomes. It's somewhat mixed, though. And the biggest kind of hangup we had with the supervised consumption literature is that there's not enough to determine how we can scale it up, given the enormity of the overdose crisis here in the United States. These facilities, you know, they have maybe a dozen seats at a time, a dozen booths at a time. It's going to be very hard to scale that out. So we think maybe the what we should do is pilot other ways of supervising consumption beyond just having a brick and mortar facility. So Canada has been piloting that with what they call overdose prevention sites, which are basically literally tents in, in public areas where drug use occurs and they're just staffed with individuals with naloxone. And so these are kind of even lower threshold facilities. We have a caravan that people can go to and get to, if they want to inject, but also get educated and we don't prescribe, but it is, it's there. But I mean, I'm just thinking about America. It's such a huge country. And if you're looking at Appalachia, you know, you're, you've got hundreds of thousands of square miles. And you've got indi- the idea that an individual is going to truck 30 miles Correct. three times a day to inject their heroin seems a bit implausible to me. Yeah. And that's the other thing, too. The yeah. literature might not be translatable to, to these areas. I mean, in this country, our overdose crisis, um, you know, was largely in areas that were kind of deindustrialized uh, places, um, at least the prescription overdose crisis. I mean, yes, we had a long simmering heroin problem in urban areas, but the overdose, the prescription overdose crisis was happening in Appalachia. And yeah, nobody's going to drive 50 minutes to, you know, two or three times a day to inject heroin uh, or to inject, you know, a drug they purchased off the street is just not feasible. So there, there is where we need to think about more, more innovative things like mobile methadone vans, um, or you know, extending. What's great about buprenorphine and telemedicine is that any general practitioner can prescribe thirty days worth of, of buprenorphine to an individual. So you know, he or she can oh, just right. yeah, can just take the pill once a day or take the sublingual tablet once a day, and it works. Hey, cool. Mm-hmm. Because when you think about, I mean, where safe injecting rooms have really been successful, like Vancouver or Zurich, you can walk there because <laughs> everyone lives within about a mile of it. Precisely. Yeah. So that's going to be limited here in the United States. But that said, the overdose crisis, at least with fentanyl, fentanyl started to emerge in the urban markets is starting in 2016. So it's, we first started showing up in Ohio and parts of New England. And then as time went, it started showing up in places like Baltimore in the heroin market there, Washington, D.C., Philadelphia, New York. So all the kind of eastern city states or uh, cities in the eastern seaboard are, are really getting hit now with, uh, with fentanyl. In contrast, out west in the United States, it's starting to happen there, at least in 2018 data, 2019 data, we're seeing a little bit in some of the major heroin markets there. But uh, kind of going back to that point of the tar out west and the powder out east, we do think that the tar phenomenon may have prevented fentanyl's encroachment into cities out west. Well, because people could tell the difference. They couldn't. Well, the dealers can't actually get the powder fentanyl into the gummy or tar. Into the tar, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So that, yeah, that's a very that may have yeah that may have actually saved a lot of lives that seems to be changing though because we're starting to see a lot more counterfeit prescription tablets showing up so the mexican drug trafficking organizations are increasingly producing these counterfeit tablets and they're made to look just like the genuine products with the same the same stamps the same dyes the same coloring agents you name it and it doesn't contain 30 milligrams of oxycodone it contains maybe you know two milligrams of fentanyl uh and if you crush that up thinking you're getting 30 milligrams of oxycodone and you you shoot that, you you may overdose. You may, yeah, quite, quite. What what's the? I, I, I remember hearing there were some big lawsuits against the companies. Mm-hmm. Um, what's happened there? I mean, or, was that on statewide or was that or was that nationwide? Or how is that working? So I believe some of those there have been several, and that's still. I think one of them is still ongoing. The largest one, they're, they're like multi-jurisdictional law class action lawsuits, mm-hmm. and these are at the federal right. level. In some cases, they're states, but it's a bundling of, of localities and states that are suing these pharmaceutical manufacturers because the states or these localities have had to pay out for you know 
emergency responses, have had to pay out for overdose treatment, have had to pay all these these kind of externalities mm-hmm. that the pharmaceutical companies, mm-hmm. you know, they're not paying for any of that. And so mm-hmm. the plaintiffs are suing these pharmaceutical companies to try to get some sort of payout because of the harms caused by overprescribing. And, and indeed, we're finding out, looking into data from, from DEA, some of the investigative journalists have, have found that, yeah, indeed, you're, you, you do see some sort of pharmaceutical companies, or at least the distributors of the pharmaceutical comp- the, the, the pharmaceutical products, knew that there were suspicious activity when it came to prescribing. So, for example, there was a small town in West Virginia called Kermit, West Virginia, population like 5,000. In a period of, I don't know how many years, I think it was like five years, they got, I forget, close to 10 million uh, pills were distributed through that town. And so clearly, yeah, that, that seems to be indica- indicating some sort of diversion. And the distributors, they, they saw the numbers and they just didn't care. They did what was legally required, which was to document it and to maybe report it, but they didn't stop anything. I think you're right. For them, they were making more money, weren't they? They, I mean, yeah, uh, Keith Humphreys says basically these were drug dealers in lab coats. You know, these, these, were, these guys knew what they were doing and they, they yeah. Oh, that's unfortunate. Mm-hmm. There have been some other new drugs coming along with exotic names like isotonazine. Isotonazine. Yeah. yeah. What the hell? Is- <laughs> so indeed, we are starting to see. So to kind of give your listeners some background on the fentanyl issue, um, you know, we started to see fentanyl showing up in 2014. In addition to that, we started to see some of these we call fentanyl analogs, and these are chemically similar. To fentanyl, they they essentially have the similar structure to fentanyl, but you may are removing or adding a new atom to the chain to, to generate a uh-huh, new chemical. Yeah. And the way our drug laws are written, individual chemicals are listed. Okay, I see. So, so they're getting around the drug laws. So. Yep. So the chemists are essentially manufacturing new drugs to get around these drug laws. And so the analogs are showing up, starting to really show up in greater in greater prevalence in 2014, 15. Every year, DEA was reporting maybe 20 you know, dozen, two dozen and a half new substances that were never seen before. Um, and that was causing a lot of confusion in these markets because the users and dealers don't know what they're dealing with. I mean, in many cases, nobody's, nobody's taken these before in human history. So the user is the human guinea pig. Correct. Really. Yeah. And so the dealer doesn't know what he's handling out. He doesn't know how to dose it properly. And in some cases, some of these analogs may be more potent than fentanyl itself. So three methyl fentanyls, a few times more potent than fentanyl. And then you have car fentanyl, which is like a hundred times more potent than fentanyl. And it was, it was developed in the seventies as a, an, a, an elephant tranquilizer, basically. Yeah. So that was showing up in some markets. And so, for example, in, in Ohio, Ohio was one of the few states exposed to uh, carfentanil in latter half of 2016, first half of 2017. And you started to see that in that state, in 2017 alone, that state's share of the entire country's uh, overdose death share for synthetic opioids only was about 13%. So about was that about one out of every eight overdose deaths for synthetic opioids occurred in Ohio. Well, Ohio's share of the national population is less than four percent. Yeah. So yeah. that disparity was largely because carfentanil showed up in that market, and carf- we don't know why. Uh, it was just that, and a, a few other states were exposed to carfentanil, but really Ohio was the one that got a real concentrated dose of carfentanil. We don't know why it showed up for a little bit and then disappeared. Um, so that's con- just generating this, this churn of new analogs, just generating confusion. Dealers don't know how to uh, dose it out. Users don't know what they're taking. So DEA in 2018 issued what we call a, kind of what I call a generic class control. They, they issued through their, their regulatory powers of emergency scheduling a uh, temporary ban on all fentanyl-related structures. So anything that is chemically similar, structurally similar to fentanyl, it is controlled. Whether or not it exists, whether or not it has been synthesized, it's just controlled. Just we're done with it is what they said. China adopted the same ban in 2019. And since then, we've started to see these other non-fentanyl synthetic opioids showing up in the market. Isotonitazine is one. And right. isotonitazine is, is a benzamidazole class of opioids, not related to fentanyl, but According to the literature, and isotonitazine or the atonitazine, it's, it's, which is the, the father of this, that one's been around since I think the 50s or 60s. And it was, in some cases, some of these new drug compounds were designed by pharmaceutical companies as potential yeah, medicines. Yeah. And then they were shelved yeah. because, oh, no, it turns out they were way too addictive or way too harmful. So the chemists in China, it seems to be that they're going to the open source literature, the patent literature, as the wellspring of these new drugs. 
and they're starting to show up in markets here. And so it could be that the generic controls on fentanyl, the ban on all fentanyl-related structures, may have pushed some of these chemists into this new frontier of the benzamidazole class of opioids. And so etonitazine and its cousins, according to some of the literature that I've read, uh, are just as varied as the fentanyls and just as potent as the fentanyls. So in five years, we may be talking about you know the benzamidazole class of drugs and not fentanyl. Fentanyl might be yesterday's problem. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, actually, it's very. In Britain, we don't have that problem yet, thankfully. We have the same, but we have exactly the same issue with synthetic cannabinoids. Yep. Because we we've controlled cannabis to a point, you know, a ridiculous extent. So people are, are now testing completely new synthetic cannabinoids on themselves and, and dying. Yep. Uh, not it's not in the same numbers as the dying from the fentanyls, but but designer drugs, you know, it's generally best to test drugs on non-human. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. yeah. yeah. no, but it's that, happening. <laughs> but that gets me to to you know, I think maybe my last question to you now what, is about the role of cannabis in as a as an, a way of helping people deal with pain, other than using opiates. I mean, we we hear stories that there's been a reduction in medical opioid use in, in some of the states which have really uh, embraced medical cannabis. Do you see that? Or is that something you believe in? Is that something that you think might be a way to help reduce the, the harms of um, prescription opioids? Well, just to kind of give you the, some background on the literature, I mean, right now, the evidence on cannabis use for chronic pain is largely mixed and conclusive um, for chronic pain. There's some evidence to suggest that it helps with muscle spasticity and kind of neurological pain in some cases. So that might work for those patients. Uh, there is a lot of kind of natural experiments at the ecological level. So states that adopt, I mean, just using population level data, not individuals, but states that adopted medical cannabis access largely do see reductions or don't see as many incidences of opioid uh, use. And that's measured at in terms of the number of prescriptions, as well as the number of outcomes relating related to um, opioids, so overdose deaths and overdose emergency department visits for, for overdose. Um, so it's hard to say what exactly is happening. It could be that, so the story is that maybe if you are a chronic pain patient, maybe cannabis could be one alternative to getting an individual to kind of preventing them from starting a course of opioid use. Because we're, we're finding out that, you know, opioids aren't good for chronic, for treating chronic pain, great for acute pain. Chronic pain doesn't seem to be really good for a lot of people. There might be some patients that do benefit from, from opioid use for, for chronic pain, but by and large, you know, if you've got a bum knee or a bad back, it probably is not going to be good for you and you'll end up developing some sort of tolerance and then physical dependency and all the other problems associated with that. So cannabis may be an alternative for that. Um, it, so that might be one way of kind of preventing people from getting on the opioid highway. In terms of getting off the opioid highway, some people do report that, yes, cannabis use may – reduce the number, the amount of opioids that they take um, in that there may be this synergistic effect in the brain. So that, that warrants further research. We, it, it's, it's hard to say, but it is true that the states that were the earliest to adopt medical cannabis were the kind of Western states so California, Oregon, Washington, those states out West. And those are by and large states that don't have the overdose crisis that uh, states out East have had, especially in parts of Appalachia and um, kind of the rural areas in, in the Midwest. It seems would seem to me that I, I don't I'm not completely familiar with the medical cannabis rollout, but some of the states you've been talking about having the highest levels, they don't have medical cannabis, do they? So medical cannabis in the United States, um, most states now have some form of medical cannabis access, but it's varied. It's very varied in how that's defined. So you've got something like 33 states that allow individuals to obtain some form of THC, which is the principal um, intoxicating agent in cannabis, in some form, uh, either in tincture or in whole plant material. So you can go to a dispensary and get you know, a couple grams of Bubba Kush and smoke that. Or in some states, you're required to go to a, a state-licensed dispensary and get only tinctures or other oils, no smokable products allowed. Then you've got another 13 states that and these are largely in the south that allow for low potency THC, so less than one percent, but high CBD constant, uh, uh, which is the other, which is the other kind of principal uh, cannabinoid in, in cannabis. So most states have access to some form of cannabis, but it's very staggered in what is available. Uh, the western states have always been kind of the more looser access. I mean, medical cannabis in the west was kind of I mean, pseudo medical. You got people, you know, in their mid thirties showing up saying, "Yeah, I got a little anxiety. I, I, I need cannabis," uh, and that seems 
seems to have been kind of traditionally what's been. And then now you've, you know, the rollout of recreational cannabis has, has really taken off out west. So states like California, Oregon, Washington, Colorado, these states now, anybody over the age of 21 can go in and buy an ounce. Don't, don't need a doctor's you know, prescription. But yeah, it's, it's very varied in the United States in terms of what's available. But you're right that the, the more looser access states were the ones that they don't have the opiate overdose crisis. It's the other ones that do the kind of Appalachia. These are more rural, more conservative states that have had um, just overprescribing. Yeah, but I mean, I think it's the general principle. I mean, the less harmful the drug, the less likely you are to die. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and that's the sort of general principle in all this. Yeah, no, yeah. What's been happening? How has coronavirus affected your, your work and your, the problems? Well, my work, uh, I mean, I'm working from home, so that's, uh, it's, yeah. <laughs> productivity is down. <laughs> um, well, so in terms of uh, what we're seeing, coronavirus is, I mean, this is a serious disruptive event. Uh, I mean, you know, the last global pandemic was 100 years ago, so it's hard to really, it's hard to really understand what this is going to do to drug markets. But that said, yeah, it, it, it's it's going to be disruptive for individuals that are buying these drugs in these markets. It's going to be disruptive for individuals selling drugs in these markets. Uh, and we're starting to see early kind of indications of that. Um, you know, if people aren't allowed to be outside to buy drugs, well, they may start sourcing more online. Uh, they may start turning to alcohol because that's what's, you know, alcohol is still available. The, the shortages or the, the supply constraints on drugs that are trafficked over the border, you know, they might, those, those kind of supply constraints may put pressure on individuals. It's hard to say, you know, empirically what's happening because we don't have the data yet. We won't have, I mean, our overdose death data lag by a year to our seizure data often, at least the federal, the federal level lag by a year. So we won't, we really won't know until next year what the impacts are. But that said, you know, drug trafficking largely occurs in the same channels as legitimate commercial goods. Um, you know, Container shipments, air travel, those types of things, cars over crossing over the border. So all those kind of constraints on legitimate trade and travel will put pressure on the supply of drugs. There have been some early news reports and law enforcement indications that methamphetamine prices wholesale have gone up. And some have suggested that's because Mexican drug trafficking organizations are having a harder time getting precursor chemicals from China, which is their their largest supplier of the chemicals that they're used to manufacture methamphetamine. So it could be that it's having some constraints, but we'll, it'll just take time to see what exactly is going to happen. But yeah, at the same time, you know, coronavirus it's it's going to harm you know those individuals who have pre-existing conditions. Uh, and if you're a heroin user, chronic heroin user, you know your health is not in great shape. You probably don't have access to healthcare. Uh, you're living, you know, your life is very hand to mouth. So those individuals are are likely to uh, succumb to the virus. This could have a huge impact on demand. A lot of individuals either may die or may try to get into methadone because they just can't get heroin anymore. Well, no doubt you'll be monitoring it in the way Rand has done for as you say, for the last 30 years. Bryce, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. And uh, Yes, I look, absolutely. I look forward to seeing you in, uh, when I'm in D.C. next year. Well, that was a fascinating program, wasn't it? So it's interesting how uh, a very different healthcare system, the one in the USA, can in a way create a crisis and then double it because there's no really obvious way of providing a national provision for the people who've become damaged by overprescribing. So a really uh, illuminating and, and slightly worrying account of uh, a modern phenomenon. If you've enjoyed it, then obviously follow us, uh, follow me on Twitter, follow Drug Science on Twitter, and ideally become a community member because that gives you lots of opportunities to access drug science events, uh, books, publications, meet with the team. But most importantly, community members support the organization of drug science. And without you, we wouldn't be able to produce podcasts like this. So thank you for listening. 